Mark chapter 15, verse 27. I'm sorry, verse uh, 22. Talks about Jesus going to the cross. And it says this, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that it was in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for us here this morning that we would confess and believe that you are the son of God. That we would see who you are, that we'd feel the weight of what took place on that cross. And Lord, that we would believe that you are the Son of God and even more so that you are God himself on the cross for us. Lord, may we see that. May we take it in this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning we're continuing our series in the greatest of all time. We have one more week next week where we'll wrap this up and then we'll be beginning a series called Designer Sex. And I just want to tell you in advance right now that if you have uh, 
kiddos that come with you that um, uh, we want to know about that, know what your needs are if, you, if there isn't a class for them right now, um, because we may want to censor what we're talking about. It will be at, at least PG-13 and possibly in your book rated R. And so I, I want to encourage you over the next uh, couple of weeks to be thinking about this. Uh, we are planning to take on all manner of uh, sex-related issues over the next uh, several weeks after that, God willing. And the plan in and through that is to address the concerns of our culture, of our city, and, and of ourselves that we have in regards to those things and what the scriptures have to say about them. We believe that today is the day, now is the time to address these things and to come out boldly and say what we believe, but come out boldly and say where we also, uh, those of us who are a part of the church, those of us who claim to be Christians, where we need to be redeemed as well. That is the first place where we need to begin is to talk about ourselves and all of the problems and issues within the church before we even start talking about our world. And so we'll begin there um, after we talk about God and his plan. So uh, that aside here, we're talking about how Jesus is the greatest of all time. And today we're talking about how Jesus is the greatest sacrifice of all time. You could also say this, that Jesus is the greatest hero of all time. He's the, he is the greatest picture of what a hero is. And many people don't understand this Jesus because of the pictures that they have of him, of this soft and cuddly Jesus with the long flowing hair. Many people have a picture of Jesus that is incorrect because they have not actually read the scriptures in regards to who he is or what he is like. We talked about that last week. We need to see who he is and what he's like. We see him on a donkey in the triumphal entry last week. And what we see about him is that he is gentle, that he is mild, that he is meek, that he is peaceful, that he brings peace. But it's not in the same way that these pictures uh, that we have throughout our society really show about him. These pictures are, are really just a characterization or a caricature of what many people have had in their minds. And so they don't really see who Jesus is. And Jesus wants you. Jesus wants you. Get this. Jesus wants you to fully see who he is, to feel what he is, and to fully internalize him in that, and through that to believe him, to believe in him, to see, feel, and believe. So what, it, what does it take? Well, we just read this story about Jesus on the cross and how he went to this cross, and there is a centurion who's sitting there, and this guy is a guy who no doubt has helped to murder Jesus. He sat there and he murdered the son of God. He murdered him. And as he's standing at the foot of the cross, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. And he comes to this conclusion. And I'll bet it changed his life. It changed his heart forever. Now, why is that interesting? Well, because of this. He's a 
hardened man. Centurions are not, are not soft dudes. He is a hardened man. He's a man who has been in this Roman army, no doubt has done treacherous things, no doubt was a part of everything that took place that day. And here he is saying that truly this man was the son of God. How do you get to that place? How do you get to the place where you say that truly he is the son of God? And some of you are Christians and you're saying, I believe that he's the son of God. But I, I just want to tell you that our idea of belief, our idea of understanding of Jesus is oftentimes skewed from the truth. It's skewed because of these pictures that we have, because of this understanding that we have. Many times we allow other people to tell us who Jesus is without actually investigating who he is for ourselves. And that in and of itself creates the problem. And it creates a problem of massive proportions in our society. As Christians, we don't really understand who Jesus is. And so what happens is this, is that we become judgmental of other people. What happens is this, is that we become uh, hypocrites. What happens is that we turn off everyone we know to the gospel because of the way that we live our lives, because of a misunderstanding of who Jesus actually is and the fact that he can change hearts. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul talks about how he knows that the gospel is capable of saving everyone who believes from first to last. It's in and through that that we see this, that the gospel is the hope of everyone and of everything. The gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, and then going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world. And Paul says that it's within this that can save our world. Save them from what? Save them from the idea that anything else could truly be their king. And we say, well, I don't really get the idea of a king, but really we do. There's something in our lives that controls us, that directs us, that tells us what we should and shouldn't do. Even if it's religion or morality, as we said last week, those things can even become king over and above Jesus himself when Jesus embodies and is the gospel. And so we miss it altogether. So what are we being saved from? We're being saved from other kings in our lives. We're being saved from these things. And as a result, our hearts are changed. Now, why do we need change? Why do we need change? Everyone believes on some level that we need change. If you watch the news for five seconds this week, you would see we need change. An officer gunned down, down south. Uh, two news reporters gunned down. The nine people, I believe it was, in a church down south. I mean, just uh, guns and violence and all of this. And I, I'm not making any kind of a political statement about firearms, okay? Just leave that out of this for a minute. We're talking about the hearts of people who have created chaos in our society. We're talking about all of the needs of our world and everything that is going wrong, everything that is happening, all of the Supreme Court rulings, all of sexuality, the pervasive sexuality that's growing all the way through our schools, through the people around us. We're talking about absolute brokenness. 
And then recently there was a, I believe he was a protester, who was speaking with one of the presidential candidates. It's on my mind a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm into the news a little bit. And so um, you'll hear me talk about this occasionally. But uh, Hillary Clinton was having a conversation with someone from the Black uh, uh, Lives Matter uh, campaign or uh, whatever they are exactly. And, and he was talking about how he wants to see hearts changed. And Hillary Clinton shot back and said, oh, no, no, no. She essentially said, you don't know what you're talking about because you can't change hearts. You will never do that. But let me tell you something, that the promise of the gospel can change hearts and does change hearts and will change hearts. It, he changed a centurion from a murderer to somebody who says, truly, he is the son of God. He changed a murderer like Paul, who hated Christians, changed him into one of the greatest people in the scriptures other than Jesus that we know of. He changes hearts. He changes people's lives. It wasn't just then, it is today. He changes hearts. He can redirect us. I was reading an article this week about an astrophysicist who was looking into science and was, was adamant that there was no God. But as she got deeper and deeper into science, she came to the conclusion that she, and she said, there, there must be a God. There must be a God. He changes hearts. How does he change your heart? When you look at what's going on in our world and you see all of the problems, what needs to happen? Is it really gun control? Is it really that people, that we would just tell people, hey, don't be a racist? Or is that an internal problem that somebody has of hatred towards their brother or sister? Is that an internal problem and a heart issue? Or is it just something that can just be changed by will? Well, we know this, that our world isn't getting any better. I don't know about you, but uh, things seem to be progressing, going to hell in a handbasket, literally. So what's the cure for our society? What's the cure for us? Well, it has to do with Jesus and his gospel. But you have to see, you have to feel, you have to believe. And what's it take to do that? You've got to take it in. Well, what's it mean to take it in? Well, this summer, uh, I went on a road trip with my family. And I, I love road trips. It's, it's an absolute blast. We have four kids. And um, we, uh, we drove down from uh, Salem, and we uh, went down and at Grants Pass, went over, hit the 101, went through the Redwoods, over the Golden Gate Bridge, and then um, uh, back onto the, the 5, and then over to Tucson. We s spent a couple of days there in Tucson. And then from Tucson, we decided to go to uh, the Grand Canyon. And let me just tell you, so I am just kind of a strategic person when it comes to driving with my children, right? Um, I, I want to figure out how to get there quickly and painlessly. And so I was telling my wife, uh, if we leave it this time, we can make it to the Grand Canyon, and then we can actually get on the road and make it back to L.A. to my brother's house in time. But uh, So we left, and we're driving and, uh, and driving, and then we finally get kind of uh, up on this highway, and then we hit traffic. There's been an accident. So we're stuck in traffic for a couple of hours, and that pushes us back. 
And then uh, there's all kinds of other things trying to get through Flagstaff, and oh, it was it was chaos, and everybody's stressed out, and it, I mean, just an entire day of stress. And my wife is just like, "Can we just please stop?" And I'm like, "No, we're getting there. We're doing this now." And so I, I kept driving, kept driving, kept driving. We get to the entrance of the Grand Canyon, and after driving like 90 miles an hour through this, don't tell anyone I, I said that, but dr- drove down this really long road in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing around, so no one was in danger except for me. Uh, um, but then we, uh, we get to the entrance and wait there for 30, 45 minutes. The sun is about to go down, and we are so stressed out. And then we finally get to the parking lot, we dump the kids out of the car, and they're like, what's going on, what's going on, just come on right now, dragging them with us, and we finally get to the rim of the Grand Canyon, and the sun is going down, and then the kids say, I've got to go to the bathroom, and there's no bathroom in sight, and so we had to run back, and then we got back to the... uh, to the uh, rim of the Grand Canyon just as the sun was going below the uh, sunset there. Did we have that picture? Yeah. And so uh, here's the family out there. And so we're out there with probably, I mean, there must have been hundreds of people out on the the south rim. And the sun's just going down. It's kind of hazy like that. And the thing that kept coming to my mind is that everyone's kind of taking this in. Everyone's kind of taking in this, this view but what I'm thinking is that I, I, just, I don't feel like I can experience this fully. Like, I, I, like I, I want to get down in there. I want to get in the middle of the Grand Canyon and look up. I, wa- I want to look around the, the haze because of the, the evening and the, the clouds. It's kind of blocking, and I can't really fully take it in because it's just about dusk, and we only have about 30 minutes to spend here before we get back on the road. So I couldn't really take it in. I couldn't really experience it. I couldn't really feel it for all it's worth. And you know what? Some of us are okay with a Christian life of just kind of barely taking it in. We're driving 90 miles an hour. You hit traffic. There's all kinds of things that are in your way. And what you're content with is to go out on the south rim and just look around for a minute and then just be done. We don't actually ever experience who Jesus is. We don't ever actually see him for all that he's worth. Because we're either in too much of a hurry, we've misunderstood, we're allowing someone else to tell us what this Jesus is. And so we haven't actually really experienced him. And some of you are Corbin students who are here. Welcome. So glad that you're here with us today. And some of you grew up in Christian homes. And you grew up in Christian homes and someone has always told you who Jesus was without you ever actually investigating who he is. And so you've gone to Christian school now and something's going to take place. Because I know many, many Corbin students, I know many Christian college students who have gone to school and then tubed their faith, who have gone to school, left school, left their wife, left their husband, tubed their faith, gone away. And what is the difference between you and and them? 
What's going to be the difference? I, I've got to tell you this, that if you don't take in Jesus for everything that he is, you'll miss him. If you don't take him in, if you just go up to the south rim and you just look at him a little bit and you just kind of, okay, that's, I, I, I can say that I made it there and now I can leave rather than getting down there and experiencing him. Do you know what that means? And many of us don't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know what it meant to experience God for real. I didn't understand what it really looked like to have relationship with him. I didn't understand any bit of that. But progressively, throughout my life, God has revealed himself to me in different ways as I've been able to fully see who he is and take him in, I pray. Has that happened to you? Have you ever had that moment where it's, I, I'm, I'm finally there, and this isn't just something that my husband wants me to do, or that my wife wants me to do, or that my parents want me to do, or that my youth pastor wants me to do, but it's something that's real in me that's changing me, because this is what can happen. And will you settle for a quick look? Or will you take him in? Will you take him in? I want to take you back to Mark chapter 14. And in Mark chapter 14, there's some things that take place. At the beginning of the chapter, it begins to talk about how the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious people of his day uh, want to kill him. They want to kill Jesus. The next little section, verse 3 to 9, talks about how Jesus is anointed at Bethany by this woman. And John chapter 12 tells us that it was Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray Jesus, who puts up a big fight and says, why is she wasting this, this ointment, this perfume? Why is she doing this? And Jesus answers him back in verse 6 and says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And immediately after that, Judas goes out and he makes a deal with the chief priest and he basically sells out his friend. He betrays him. He's one of these people. He's, bas he's basically just like the centurion. He's put Jesus on that cross. And here he is. He's betraying Jesus. It says he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so our story begins in verse 12 and it says, On the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Men didn't normally carry jars of water. Women did. And so this is kind of, uh, kind of like a uh, 007 deal here. Look for the guy carrying the water jar. So they look for the guy carrying the water jar, and he says, follow him. Uh, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where uh, I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, uh, and, and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? 
The Passover is essentially this. Envision for me just a second, and this is going to sound sacrilegious or blasphemous at first, but it'll, it'll get better here in a minute. Um, so <laughs> um, imagine uh, one of the only feasts, one of the very few that we have in uh, the U.S. is Thanksgiving. So imagine for a second Thanksgiving. But let's just say that there's this, uh, th this turkey, and this turkey represents something. And let's, let's say that this turkey represents everything bad that we've done throughout the year. And let's just say that at Thanksgiving, we're going to chop this baby's head off and we're just going to say, thanks, we're going to eat this turkey and, uh, and partake of it. But consider for a moment, uh, you've heard of the presidential pardon, that the president uh, pardoning uh, the, the tradition that he has, the, pardoning the turkey, uh, let's just say for a moment that instead of pardoning the turkey, that whatever president we're talking about, I'm, don't get your hopes up here uh, at all, but um, uh, what, let's just say for a moment that the president says, instead of the turkey, I'm going to die. I'm going to take the turkey's place. The Passover is a little bit like that. That's about the, the best way that I can put this into words. The Passover really talks about how God's people, Israel, were in captivity in Egypt. And what was happening in Egypt is that they had some incredible taskmasters, ultimately led by Pharaoh. And so they were under slavery. And this slavery forced them to work. It forced them uh, to do all kinds of things. And it was hor horrific the way that this went down. And so God calls Moses and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And so he goes to Pharaoh, who's the king at that time of, of Egypt, and he says, let my people go. He says he won't. And so he says, okay, you're, you're going to experience you know, God's wrath, essentially. And so what happens is this, is that there's a series of nine plagues that happen. And these nine plagues that come over just devastate the land through uh, utter darkness, and the water turns completely into blood, and there's gnats, and there's frogs, and it, it's horrific stuff that, that takes place. And each time he says, no, 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 I, I'm not going to let, let your people go. And so finally he comes to the end to the last plague. And the last plague is this, that God is going to send his angel of death, and that angel of death is going to kill the firstborn son of every family, Egyptian and Israelite alike. The Egyptians and God's own people will experience this angel of death. However, God makes a way. And in Exodus 12, it tells us a story of how God makes a way. And so there's all of these qualifications and everything that needs to happen. And so they needed to take this perfect lamb, a year old lamb. And they were supposed to sacrifice this, sacrifice this lamb with bitter herbs. And they were, they were going to kill this lamb. And what had to happen is that they had to eat this thing. They had to heat, eat it in one sitting. If any was left, they had to burn that up. And ultimately what they needed to do is that they needed to take this blood from this lamb and they needed to spread it on their doorposts, on the lintel and on the other doorpost. And the angel of death would pass over their home. That's the meaning of the Passover. Now, this picture of the Passover, Jesus or God, I should say, uh, institutes as a yearly festival. And he says, this is the beginning of your year. 
And this is what, how God is saying that this is going to be everything for you. You've got to pay attention to Passover. And so what's happening here is that they're about to have this feast and that they're going to reenact this and they're going to walk through the different phases of the Passover and so forth. And there's going to be somebody who's presiding over this feast in each home and they're going to be walking through the Passover sacrificing this lamb. Now fast forward to Jesus' time where his disciples say, where will you have us go to prepare the Passover? And Jesus says, go here. And so they go there and they do this. And so uh, uh, they're, they're going to have Passover now. Verse 17 says, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Who's going to betray you? He said to them, it's one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, what Jesus just said there is this. Someone's going to betray me, but here's what you need to know. This evil thing that's going to take place is happening the way that I have ordained it. This evil thing that's going to take place is happening within the context of my control and sovereignty. So let's take a second, let's just take a break and, and for, for a minute from the passage and just go, what does that mean? That means this, that means that God is ultimately and finally in control and he is so good at what he does that he's able to take a bad thing and turn it into a good thing. He's able to take the worst thing that ever happened and make it into the best thing that's ever happened. God is so good like that. Why can you trust him? Why should you trust this Jesus? Because Jesus knows this. He knows that Judas and his life and his desires have been ordained for this purpose, that Judas was going to make a willful choice and that that choice was going to fall in line with what, what God desired to see happen and will happen as a result. Verse 22 and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is presiding over this Passover meal. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, we're in the middle of this meal and we don't know if there's actually a lamb on the table. But I imagine that there is because it is Passover. Some people don't believe that there was even a lamb there for a reason which I'll tell you in a minute. But Jesus is eating and he breaks this bread and the symbolism here is palpable. 
Because what he's saying is he's, is he's drawing a line from him back to the Passover. And he's saying this. He's saying, do you, you remember that lamb that saved you? Israel. You remember that lamb that saved you from the angel of death, from God's righteous anger? Remember that lamb? This is my body, and it is broken for you. And do, do you remember that blood? Do you remember that blood? This is my blood of the covenant. This is, this is the blood that is poured out for many. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am the lamb. I'm the lamb. So they take a picture from history and say, remember the Passover. The reason why your year starts here is I wanted you to remember this lamb. Remember how he had to die. I am this lamb. I've been telling you I'm going to the cross, and now I'm showing you, and more than showing you, what's he want them to do? The Israelites, when they sacrificed that lamb, they not only needed to kill the lamb and get the blood, but they had to specifically ingest that lamb. There were details about it, how they were supposed to eat it. Every bit of it was to be cooked, head and all. And they were to eat it like this, but not only did they have to produce the blood on the doorway, but they also had to ingest this. And Jesus is saying the same thing. You can't just be a casual observer of me. You can't just observe. You can't just walk out to the edge of the south rim and just go, okay, Christianity's cool. Okay, Jesus is my homeboy. Okay, I, yeah, whatever. You actually have to take it in. You have to see who he is. And who is he? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is this lamb who comes, and he's a perfect lamb. He's this perfect sacrifice. And Jesus wants you to ingest him. Now, we're not saying that that bread actually turns into him. That's called transubstantiation, if I can say it. That's not what we're saying. Jesus is saying that you must ingest all that I am you must ingest, you must take me into you. And it's got to flow down through your body. And I want you to taste and see what I've done or what I'm going to do is that I'm going to go to this cross. And what's going to happen here is this, is that he wants them to remember, to do this in remembrance. He wants them to do this in Remembrance of him, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. He wants us to do this in remembrance of what he's done for us. Now, why does he want us to remember him? Why does he want us to taste this? Why, did, why does he want to give us such a vivid picture before he goes to the cross? Next passage. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you guys are going to be so fantastic. You're going to be the perfect disciples. Everyone's going to love you. We can do this. Um, yeah, I mean, you guys are, are, are going to live these perfect lives. You're never going to go to rated R movies. 
You're never going to struggle with anything. You're never going to have relational difficulties. You're never going to experience divorce. You're never going to... Did Jesus say that? No, Jesus said this. It went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what did Jesus just say? He just took a prophecy from the Old Testament, applied it to himself, and what he's saying is this, is that the shepherd, Jesus, is going to be struck on the cross, and the sheep are going to scatter. That, that is, Jesus' true followers are going to scatter. Now, before, we're talking about this centurion. He needs his heart changed, right? He helped murder Jesus. Okay, then we'll talk about Judas for a second. Judas, what a dirtbag, right? Hate that guy. He betrayed Jesus. But even more so than that, Jesus says this. He says, you will all fall away. Every single one of you is going to walk away from me. Every single one of you is going to go away in weakness, in cowardice. You're going to try to profit from my death. And look what happens. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not die. I will not, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So let's talk about that for a second. You can try to make up your mind all that you want about what you're not going to do. You could try. I'm never doing that. You can make up your mind. You can raise your hand in chapel. You could come forward for an altar call. You could rededicate your rededication. You could say that true love waits. You could say that you're a promise keeper. You could say that whatever you want, but Jesus knows this. He knows this, that you will all fall away. The people that actually literally walked with Jesus fall away. Like if anybody should not fall away, it's the people that like, yeah, he really is the son of God. Like, I, I mean, I've seen him heal some people. Like, I really shouldn't do this. But Jesus knows this. He says, you'll all fall away and you will see what happens. His disciples fall asleep when they're supposed to be praying. Mark, or what we believe to be Mark, in uh, verse 51, it says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They believe that that was Mark who's actually writing this. Cowardice, running away, weakness, and you know what? That's a description of every single person here. That's a description of every single person here in this room. There's not a Christian in this room that doesn't suffer from weakness or cowardice in some way. There's not, there's not a person in this room that hasn't been affected by sin. 
There's not a person in this world that isn't affected by the effects of sin. And so we can look out at our culture and we can say, we can say, man, those people and the problems that they have, because they're shooting each other up, they're selling kids, taking advantage of people. Look at all of the things that they are doing, but really the problem is here. The problem is not them out there. The problem is in me. I am the problem. I am the biggest problem that there is, and I will fall away from him at some point. And if I don't get that, and if I don't see that, there's a huge issue. Now, what's the issue? Because of this, there's nobody sitting at that table that has the ability to follow Jesus. There's nobody sitting at that table, the Lord's Supper, who has the ability. There is only disability. There's no one at that table that doesn't have need. The prerequisite, in fact, for the gospel for knowing and loving and taking in Jesus and actually digesting him into my life, that prerequisite is simply need. It's need. And so your efforts at morality and your belief that somehow that you have kept all the rules is not a help it's actually a hindrance. The idea that, that somehow you're, you're holy and that you're better than those people who are murdering out there is completely false. And the only place to be sitting at that table saying, I can't believe that he would do this for me can't believe that he would do this for me. Like, I can't believe that he would actually go through with this. Because here's the thing. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. And you know what he was doing? He was saying, all of you are going to fail me, and yet I'm going to the cross anyway. All of you are going to fail me, and yet what I'm going to do is I'm going to take your failure. I'm going to take all the wrong things that you do and everything that you will do. I'm going to take the fact that you're going to fall away and I'm going to take that on myself. And I am the lamb. And I will be broken and I will be brutalized and I will bleed myself out and I will go to this cross as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the question is this whether you will truly say because you've ingested him. Truly, he was the son of God. Or whether you go up to the south rim and just go, yeah, that's cool. All right, seen enough. Have you seen enough? I hope you haven't because your heart's not changed by that. Have you seen enough? I hope that's not true because that's not true 
belief in Jesus Christ. Belief in Jesus Christ is seeing him, feeling the need that you have, knowing that he went to the cross anyway, and believing on him and saying, truly, this man is the son of God, and he takes away the sins of the world, and it is in and through that that my heart is changed. Do you want change? You want world change? Believe the gospel and preach it every day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning as people who are broken and needy. As people who have no ability of our own to make things right. Lord, there's so many of us that somehow think that we are acceptable to you, not realizing that there can be no sin in your presence. There's so many of us that think that we have this figured out, but in reality, we just have a lot of pride, and that in and of itself is our condemning sin. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you change our hearts, but, Lord, I believe that there are some men and women here this morning that have never received you as their savior. And Lord, they're trying to change their hearts or they see the need for change in our world and they've denied you for so long and they've looked away from you for so long because they don't believe this religion garb. And Lord, I wholeheartedly support that, that religion is not going to save them because that's nothing but a a pile of filthy rags And it is only through you and your act on the cross and you showed us what it is that needs to take place in our lives. Lord, may we truly say that you are the son of God and that you have come to take away the sins of the world. And it's only through knowing you, through truly taking you in that we have relationship with you. So we ask you for this this morning. In your name we pray, amen.